Hello, folks. It's a former metal podcast and my dad's friends. Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of the Firmamental Podcast. This is Raul. We got Alex with us, and we have a very special guest that we will be introducing here shortly. Um, before we do that, I'm just going to pass it off to Alex. He has some uh, Firmamental news that he wants to share with you before we get started today. So go ahead and say hello to the Firmamentalist, Alex. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to say that we're working hard on getting some merchandise together. We've got some cool designs, me and Raul and my wife. Uh, have been going over some things. We're gonna run them by Claude and put out some. We're gonna put out some really cool stuff on the shop as soon as we can get that up. So hopefully uh, there'll be a lot of firmamentalists out there wearing some gear and and doing some guerrilla marketing for us to help spread the word. Um, also, we have the speak pipe open on the website, so make sure you go leave your messages. We've been really enjoying those lately. Over the last two or three days, it's been incredible. And uh, keep the emails coming. Uh, we really appreciate the support and uh, how thoughtful so many of the emails are. Uh, we're probably going to read a few on a, on an AR-15, but man, like uh, we've got some amazing firmamentalists out there. So I just wanted to give a shout out to everybody. And I can't wait to, uh, you know, for both of us to drag Hillary over the coals and just like, just get it all out of her in this, in this episode. <laughs> It'd be awesome. Right on. Yeah. So we have a, uh, a friend of the show that, uh, I've been in communication with, and her name is Hillary, and she is from Ireland. Um, she has an amazing story, an amazing testimony, um, and she's very talented too. I'm actually wearing a piece of jewelry that she sent me, and she sent some other jewelry to to Gabby, and we're super grateful for that. And yeah, just a talented and beautiful person. And with no further ado, folks, here she is, uh, Hillary from Ireland. Say hello to all the firmamentalists. Hello, and hi, Roel, and hi, Alex, and thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, I hope I can, I can do it, you know, well. Um, perhaps I could start with a prayer, if you don't mind, Roel. Definitely. Okay. Yes. Father God, I thank you for this platform, Lord, where we can speak about your love and your power to transform lives. And I thank you for George Hobbs, and I pray you'll restore his health and strength and bless him for all his hard work, you know, bringing us the truth in these days of deception. And because of him, I've met Raul and Alex and others, and so I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to share what you've brought me through, and I pray that you'll give me the words that might encourage someone today. So help me, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yes, I know. Uh, this is your first time uh, being a guest on any show. Is that correct? Yeah, <laughs> I'm a bit nervous, but I know it will help me. So, oh yeah, get going. Exactly. It's my problem: what to leave in and what to leave out because I've got so many years of uh, of things that I could say, and I just want to say what would be useful, really, um, to anybody who's listening. And I'm I'm probably, well, possibly your oldest listener. So, um, 
unless there's anyone older, they can let you know. Um, oh, I'm, my mom. I'm huh? My mom's got you beat. My mom's got you beat. <laughs> <laughs> she hasn't been on the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was born in 1949, about the end of, well, just after the end of World War II, um, an only child. And I was raised in the, on the south coast of England. Um, my parents were decent people, but they weren't churchgoers. And I wasn't raised in any particular faith. Um, but England, being a supposedly Christian country at that time, um, the school day began with prayers and songs about Jesus. And um, actually, just a little aside, uh, I don't know if I'm going to go here, but... Um, when we were taught the Lord's Prayer at school, um, we said, forgive us our trespasses uh, as we forgive them that trespass against us. Now, we were taught that from the Anglican prayer book, and most of the churches would say that in the prayer book, in the Anglican prayer book. And in the Bible, in the King James Bible, it actually said debt, because I remember reading it at a later date and thinking, oh, it says debt. So I don't think anything's changed there. But anyway, I'll leave that alone. And um, moving on, until uh, I was about seven, we lived in a house where my mother was um, looked after an old man. And the old man had fought in the Boer War. His name was Bill. He was, he was a lovely old man. And uh, him and his friend, Holy Joe, they used to tell me Bible stories. And they both had these long white beards. And I remember so well just sitting with them. They told me stories. And they used to sniff snuff. They had these little tins of snuff in their pocket. And um, their beards were stained to sort of ready ground from the snuff. And I loved those old men. And I think that they prayed for me then. And I think someone always has to pray for you. I think... I think if someone prays for you, then I think God hears those prayers. But at that time, I didn't have any other. I did go to Sunday school, but apart from that, I didn't have any other input. And uh, I remember at the old man, Bill, he had a chest in the shed, and I used to go and have a look in there. And um, there was actually a sword with his military uniform from the Boer War um, in a scabbard. And... I got into trouble because I took the sword out and I was running around the garden um, cutting wimples in half apples and like bringing it down and uh, <laughs> get into trouble for that. But moving on, <laughs> I missed him when we had to move. He died when I was about seven and we had to move on. And I suppose he was like a granddad to me because I never met my parent. parents. They were already dead when I was born. And there's one little incident from that time when I was about um, five or six that stands out in my memory. And it might be relevant later on in my story, but um, I had a friend called Susie. I just started school and I had a friend who could knit. And I was really jealous because I wanted to knit. And Susie had learned to knit. And one day they came round, her and her mum, they came round for tea in our house. And they had a car. We didn't have a car then. And she showed me her knitting. And I, would, I was so jealous. 
and she left the knitting in the car. Well, when they were in the house having some tea, I slipped out to the car. I took the knitting, her knitting, off the back seat, and I slipped around the back of the house, and there was the, a big metal rainwater tank collecting all the rainwater, and I pushed her knitting right down to the bottom of the tank and watched it sink. And I felt good for a couple of minutes, and then I felt so guilty. And I carried that guilt around for, for years, and I never told anybody. And when, when Susie went back to the car, she was crying, and she said, well, somebody's stolen my knitting, and I didn't say anything. And uh, I think why I'm saying that is that the first time I realized that I wasn't the good girl that everybody said I was such a good girl. I, you know, I wouldn't be naughty. I wouldn't say boo to a goose. But I knew that what I'd done was terrible. And I felt really bad, but I couldn't tell anybody because I didn't know what to do with it. So moving on, I, um, I went to school at an all-girls school. And I, when I left school, I started a three-year art course at art college, foundational fine art. And then I went on to graphic design and, and illustration. So I spent three years at art college. Um, it was during those years that I know Raul would like to talk about the music that went on there. Um, because um, I, my first gig I ever went to, I was still at school. It was the Beatles. And the Beatles came to my hometown, which was Bournemouth on the South Coast. And... I had to queue up all, all night with a sleeping bag um, with my friend. And we were only about 14 or 15. And I was really embarrassed because my parents came down with um, an extra blanket and a flask of soup. And I, was, I told them they shouldn't have come. I was really embarrassed because I'm, you know, not a baby. <laughs> we, we got the ticket and we saw the Beatles. And I just couldn't hear a thing. <laughs> it was just girls screaming their heads off. So we didn't hear any of the music. But I remember that um, someone had said that Paul McCartney loved jelly babies. So everyone had these bags of jelly babies and they were throwing them on the stage at Paul. That could have been quite dangerous. They could have slipped on them. But that's, that's my memories, really, of that concert was jelly babies and... And I couldn't hear properly for a couple of days. <laughs> that was my first I went to. Um, when I was at college, there was a there was a club opposite the college. It was a little it was a little cellar, really. Um, you couldn't even see it from the outside that it was a club. It was a cellar downstairs underneath the shop, but someone had made it into a, a nightclub. And they had some really good bands come there. So uh, the best sessions were after midnight. So my friends and I, my friend from art college, we were about 16 then. And we used to sneak out the window to, to go to the midnight session because we shouldn't really be out that late. And some of the bands there were just amazing. The, the first band we saw was The Who. And they were down. They had terrible trouble getting their equipment down. Because I remember it was a very narrow staircase, um, and they had to lug all this stuff down the staircase and try and get it into this little cellar at the bottom. But it was amazing. And um, 
at heart uh, at the interval we we went over to the pub with um with the band and we sat with Roger Daltrey and there was um Pete Townsend, Keith Moon. Um and that, it was really fun, but they weren't that famous then. I think they just bought I Can't Explain out. And so that was good. And Pete Townsend did his sort of smashing his guitar up and it was all quite exciting. Because it wasn't a proper stage even, it was just like a little platform a few inches high. So we were stood right next to them. And that was great. And there were lots of um lots of good bands there. Um I I noted down a few of the bands I saw there. So um 1965, about 1965, uh there was um John Mayle, I don't know if you know any of these, John Mayle's Blues Breakers, uh, Van Morrison, you'd know him, um, Manfred Mann, Georgie Fame, Alex Harvey's Soul Band, oh, and Gino Washington and the Ram Jam Band. That was a good one. And lots of, lots of really good, uh, really good bands. So it was good. It was, it was a really exciting time in the 60s being young. And I also saw the Rolling Stones at, um, at the theatre, which used to be a cinema, and um, I had an autograph book, and I wanted to get some autographs, and I really, I went round the stage door afterwards, and I really wanted Mick and Keith Richards, but I only got Charlie Watts. I didn't mind, because I liked Charlie Watts. <laughs> I saw some really, really good bands, and then uh, at the end of my college years, the, uh, towards the end of my college, I think it was 1968, um, the college got Pink Floyd and it was part of their noise damage tour. It's called the Noise Damage. And to be honest, um, it was in an old ballroom, so it wasn't a terribly big venue and the speakers were so loud. I was up the front and I, it was deafening. <laughs> and I, so I remember <laughs> the back because really what I remember about that was um, my it yeah, hurt my ears again for days, but it it was it was good to be there and anyway to see them. So that is actually my favorite band of all time, Pink Floyd. Yeah, I have a tattoo of Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> it it was something to say I saw Pink Floyd, um, but uh, I don't remember much of the music. It was easier to play the albums later because you could hear yeah. it, but the, the speakers were pumped up so loud that you really couldn't hear much, you know. It was so loud. It was right right name for the uh, tour, Noise Damage Tour. <laughs> In that same venue, about 25 years later, I saw Steel Pulse, and they were brilliant because I know... I know Bob Marley really raced Steel Pulse. They were one of his favorites. And uh, I think Yellow Man was their backup. So that was good, but that was a lot later. Um, when, I was, when I left college, I very soon moved up to London, and that was really amazing uh, to be in London. I lived on the King's, just off the King's Road in Chelsea, in Sloane Square. And being up the King's Road in London in the 60s was like the place to be. It was really good. So I 
got a job um, illustrating and my friend got a job and so we were we really really it was really good and there were lots of clubs we clubbed in at weekends and we worked in the hall and um i gonna cut a long story short um i got pregnant and so i had to move home to my parents in Bournemouth, and uh they were fine they were really good and they took me in you know were happy and they loved the baby and um and then his father who wasn't didn't want to settle down or anything um after a few months he came down and he said that he'd like us to go and live with him he was buying a flat in london so but we did we moved back to london with him and i won't say it was a a good relationship because it wasn't but I did want to be back in London, so. <laughs> and he was a croupier in a casino, and uh, he got offered jobs. So um, he, he said one day, oh, I've, I've been offered a job in the Bahamas in Nassau on Paradise Island. So he said, um, should we all go? And I said, yeah. <laughs> so we lived in Nassau for oh, probably nearly a year. My son was very young. And then we came home to London, um, and then he got another job, and he said, would you like to go to Persia, which I'd rather call it Persia than Iran, because uh, when we, we went there, it was before the um, Islamic Revolution, so it was really nice, it was a lovely country. And uh, so we were there for a while, but um, there was a lot of feeling in the air. Um, it wasn't that... that it was, it, you knew there was tension in the air because the Muslims were, if, if we walked down to the market, I went down with my son who was blonde, um, the women with, that were covered up, you know, the Muslim women would spit at you and, and touch my boy because he was blonde and, you know, it was, it was difficult. So um, my son's father got paranoid and he couldn't work anymore, so we had to come home. But it was a lovely country, and the people were lovely. But of course, a few years later, um, it turned Islamic, and it all changed. So we came back to London, and um, I worked in a shop in a, a boutique designing clothes for them, um, embroidering or denim, which I used to customize. It was a really exclusive shop. And they they sold them for a fortune, but I didn't I didn't get all the money. I didn't get much money for it, but they they did, and they had a lot of like famous people who would buy them, and uh, so I enjoyed that. And then um, I was still with my son's father. Um, he his parents had um, an apartment in Ibiza, and we decided we'd go out to Ibiza for the summer and have a market store because I was making clothes and um, doing all sorts of making things. I've always made things. And so we went out to Ibiza and I had a stall in the hippie market there and it was probably the best job I've ever had. I made loads of money just working one day a week in the market. And uh, that was really good until um, my son's father had an affair with the woman whose husband owned the flat that we stayed in. 
the parents of that. And um, we all came home to England and I went back to my parents. And he, he brought this woman back to a place in London. So I thought, well, that's okay because the, it, it wasn't an ideal relationship anyway. So I thought I'd start a new life back home in Bournemouth. So I met a really nice man and I was with him for three or four years. And, but it wasn't going anywhere and I, I would have liked to get married because he had everything going for him. But he, he never seemed to want to commit. So um, I was in a state where I didn't know where my life was going and I wanted to, I wanted some sort of direction, but I didn't really know where to look. And I've got a job um, working at the RNLI, the Royal National Lifeboat Institute in Paul in Bournemouth. And um, I worked in um, a studio in the art department with a man um, called Dave. And I brought this book in one day and I was, I was looking at it, I was reading it, and it was all about um, your future in the stars. And it was all about star signs and sun signs. And I was looking for some kind of guidance. Um, and Dave came over and he looked at what I was reading and he said, you won't find the answers in there. And I said, well, where will I find the answers? You know, I don't know where my life's going. I, I've just come to a, like a dead end. And he said, I've got a book that's got all the, the answers in that you want. And um, he gave me a Bible. And he also gave me a, a cassette tape, which was just cassette in those days. This was like 1980, something like that. Um, he gave me a cassette tape by a man called um, David Pawson. And he was a Bible teacher, a good Bible teacher, English and he also gave me a little booklet which said how to become a Christian. And he said, well, look, I'll give you this Bible. He said, listen to the tape, Henry, and see what you think. And then look up any um, references that he says to look up. And um, I'll leave it with you. So he left it with me. And that night I went back and I took the tape. And I listened to it, and it just made so much sense what he was saying. And I looked up the scriptures, and it was like a light went on, and I knew, I knew it was the truth, and I knew that Jesus was who he said he was. I knew that I only had to believe in him, and, you know, I would be saved. And so I had the little booklet, and I, I went through it, and I said the prayer in it, and I meant it from the heart, and I didn't have any flashing lights or anything amazing happen. I just went to sleep, and I slept really well. And um, the next day, I knew what I had to do as far as my relationship immediately um, was concerned because I had to get in touch with um, my boyfriend and say, well, our relationship just has to be platonic because I've been born again. and. Uh, you know, our relationship is right in the eyes of God. Of course, he didn't understand. He didn't know what happened. And uh, and then it was a couple of days later that I went into work and uh, Dave came up to me and said, uh, well, did, did you listen to that tape? Did you, did you have a look at the Bible and that? And I said, oh, yeah, I did it. <laughs> I said the prayer. I'm, I'm born again. 
And so he said, why didn't you tell me? I realized I had to tell It was kind of um, between me and God. So I didn't realize he'd be waiting to find out, you know, whether it, uh, I'd sort of, well, I thought of it or anything, or whether I'd actually taken that step and got saved. So he was really pleased. So I started going to his church with him. And um, I'd, I won't really spend any more time on that because there's such a lot more. And so I was saved in 1980, and um, it changed everything. And certainly my relationship. Um, and the funny thing is that a few weeks later, um, Philip, the guy I was going out with, asked me to marry him. And I had to say no. <laughs> because uh, I said, well, no, because you're not a Christian. And uh, I could only marry a Christian because it just wouldn't work. And he didn't understand. He came to my baptism, but he said it was like a, a glass wall has come between us as i came up out the water he felt this this transparent wall come between us and you know that was it but the amazing thing is that 15 years later he did get saved and he married a nice christian girl so that was okay so at this time you're you at this time though you're 31 years old you get saved for the first time you you commit your life to to jesus right you're single haven't been married you have you have a a son, right? Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm a one family. Um, yeah. So moving on. Um, what happened next? Oh well, I I, went, I started going to a church, and I I started doing lots of things for God, and I probably thought, not consciously, maybe, but I probably thought that. He was really lucky to have me on his team because I was doing so much. I, I ran a Sunday. I had a Sunday school. I um, I wrote plays or a little sketches for um, a drama group, which we performed in a church. Um, I did posters and big sort of things inside the church with lovely writing on, and I did all these things. And I joined a women's prayer group. Um, the Lydia Fellowship, which we prayed for all sorts of things, and which will come back into my story later on. And um, I also joined a an organisation, a Christian Christian Prison Fellowship, um, because I was interested in what they did. And they went into prison and they talked to prisoners and prisoners who showed an interest and maybe wanted a Bible or something to read or some literature. So I was very naive at that time. Um, I went into the prison with them, and we were allocated a prisoner, and we, could, we, we had to get passes to get in. We were given passes. We went in three lots of doors. They were all shut beside us, and it was strange to be inside a prison, but uh, we went in the visiting room. We had a prisoner we could talk to. And I was, I sat with this guy and we got on well. And so every time we went, I went and sat with him and talked. And cut a long story short again, I fell in love with him. And we went. So this is a prisoner, though. This is a prisoner, though. Yeah. So, so not the person you were going in with. Did you have a guard with you? No, the guard was in the in the visiting room. They would take us through the doors. But then when we were in the visiting room, 
we had a prisoner. There were tables, and you could sit one side of the table, and prisoner was the other side of the table. So I had this guy called Dell, and um, he was charming. He was just so charming, and he was good looking, and he was a bit dangerous. And I think there's something in me that kind of appealed to that as well. Well, yeah, the bad, the whole bad boy thing. He's a, he, here's a handsome yeah. bad boy, right? <laughs> uh, can I ask what was he? What was his? What was he convicted for? What was his crime? Uh, mainly drug offenses. But I was naive because he told me that, um, you know, he was clean now, and he certainly acted clean and looked clean. He was in prison, and he he wanted to um, have a new life get away from that scene in London and he wanted to come and live, you know, down on the South coast. Um, I fell for it because well, I fell in love with him and he appeared to be in love with me and he wrote, we left us and we corresponded. Um, and when he came out of prison, cut another long story short, we got married and he moved in with me and my son and for a, two or three months, it was it was really good. It was I was really happy, and it, it went really well. And he was really sweet, and and I thought we could um, be a, a couple that worked for the Lord together. And they came to church and everything. And then one day, one morning, I went out to the shops and uh, down the road, and I said, "Oh, I'll be about half an hour." So I went down. To the, to the shop and I met a friend a Christian friend there and I was talking to her and we were talking for a long time it was well over an hour and I came back home and uh, I walked in and he said where have you been and I said oh I've met Josie and I was talking to her for a while and he said you said you'd be half an hour and I said yeah but you know when you're talking to people you know the time goes sorry and uh, I went in the bathroom and I always remember this day because I went in the bathroom and he just started kicking and punching me in the stomach. He just laid into me. Oh, man. And he said, and he started hitting me and said, don't you ever do that again. And I was, I was just in shock. I didn't know how to react because, well, it was doubled over for a start because he was punching me in the stomach and kicking me. And... No one had ever hit me before, Raul. No, no man had ever touched me like that. I'd never had, I'd never had any violence in my life, you know, and it was such a shock. So that was that. And that was the beginning of um, his basic control of me, I suppose, through, through violence and fear. And the fear came in and I'd always said, if anyone ever hits me, I'm out of it. But it's not that easy. <laughs> And um, but I, but fear did come in, and he ended up controlling his complete narcissist, and went, gradually started taking the drugs again. So over a period of years, which I should I should have got out, but I didn't know how to. Um, Can I ask you something here? Because this is this yes. is in in Southern England, right? Like what kind of drugs were like prevalent back then? Like, you know, there's some drugs that are a lot harder than other drugs. Was he, was he on the hard stuff? And Alex, feel free to ask questions, man, if you have. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, anything you could get, really. I mean, mainly opiates. So there were, there were opiates from the doctor, you know, prescribed opiates, um, which he, he managed to get me in the end. To go into doctors and um, and get them, I could get them by just feigning, um, you know, different pains that I had, different problems that I had, and I I was able to do that. And he used to take me to doctors, and I used to go and get the opiate, um, you know, di- uh, dihydrocodeine, codeine, and and he or if he couldn't get anything in Bournemouth, he would he would take like a whole bottle of cough mixture with. Um, with codeine in or something, but then gradually he he managed to get find dealers and he he went back on heroin, um, and over the years um, I never got involved really badly. I mean, would smoke a bit of weed, but I never I never got involved in the opiates. But when he took opiates, he he changed and he was really, he could be really violent. So I'm basically living and walking on eggshells because I never knew when he was going to turn, you know, and I sensed that there was demonic activity there. Um, definitely when he got violent because his eyes went almost red and, and black, you know, it, it, it was very, um, I was very scared. But I had a son there, and I had dogs, and I I just had nowhere to go at that time. And he, he wasn't like this with the child, though, was he? Was he like this with your child? No, no, no. My son was at school, but um, one of my worst um, regrets is that as my son got into a teenager, there were people coming around with drugs, and he got into drugs as well in the end, and... Um, I blame myself, of course, you know, my fault, my decisions have got us into this position. Um, so anyway, he, after a while, oh, one day I was so, I just didn't know how to get out of this situation. And so I didn't feel like, know how to get out externally. So I, I just said, oh, give me some of that. So. That was my first injection, and I liked it. I mean, I liked it because um, it blotted out everything. You know, it just blotted everything out, all the all all that as I was going through, and I felt good. You know, I wasn't worried about anything because that only lasts for a short time, and um, I went for quite a while, just occasionally. And and you think that you you've got control over it, and one day you wake up and you realise. Um, you now haven't got any control <laughs> and you're addicted. So that was when I became addicted. It was in the 80s. And so I was on heroin as well. And uh, it was crazy. My son at this point, at, to... at this point, so you're talking about heroin. So are, did you, did, is it at some point, do you transfer over from the pharmaceutical? Drugs that you were going in and, and obtaining for him, and then and then start using street drugs. Did you have a dealer? Yeah. Or how were you getting heroin? When he started using it again, well, there were plenty of dealers around there. Yeah, Homer. 
plenty of dealers. And um, it was just getting the money to, to, to buy it. So what he used to get me to do was, I, I sound like a right idiot, I, I was. Um, <laughs> what he got me to do was, he said, you're so much better at like uh, shoplifting. I was good at shoplifting. I'm not proud of that, but I was good at, you know, and I was going in and lifting bottles of spirit, you know, drink, um, anything people wanted, really. And I did get caught a few times, so, um, and I would get probation. And um, so one day, anyway, this went on, and I was, I was an addict, and I had to admit to myself I was addicted. Um, so I was going, I was going for myself as much as him then to, um, to get money for drugs. So one day, um, I'd got caught shoplifting and my brief, my sister said, uh, you better take a bag in with you this time, pack, pack a bag because I don't think they're going to go for the excuses anymore. Um, I think that you're going to go down this time. So I did. I took a bag in, went to court, and they actually gave me another chance. They said they were going to put me on probation. So they put me on probation. And my first meeting with my new probation officer, I walked into the office, and um, I knew the woman who was the probation officer. And I looked at her, and I thought, oh, I said, it's Jan. And she said, yeah, she looked at me. She didn't recognize me at first. She probably didn't look like I used to. And she was a lady who had run the prayer group, the woman's prayer group, when I first was saved. I went to these prayer meetings, this woman's prayer group. And she was one of those prayer ladies. And she looked at me and she recognized me in the end. And she said, Hillary? And I, I said, yeah. She said, Ever are you doing here? Ever's happened to you? And I said, I'm just, I'm in a mess. I'm, you know, this is where I am. So she said, right. And so we both sat on the floor of her office and she prayed for me. Um, and we were both crying by this time. And she said, oh, the Lord's just shown me a vision of where you are. And you go wrapped up in this big, heavy, tight curtain wrapped right around you so tightly that you can't get out of it. And I said, yeah, exactly. I don't know how to get out. And she said, do, do you want to come back to the Lord? And I said, yeah, but I don't know how to be. Would, it, would he even want me back, you know? Um, she said, oh, anyway, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And I know, you, I know you're a Christian. And so that was the beginning of her arranging for me um, a detox with a lady she knew who had worked out in Hong Kong with drug addicts, with heroin addicts, uh, with a lady called Jackie Pullinger, which some people might know who Jackie Pullinger is. But their method was simply prayer. There was no medication, nothing like that, no help except prayer. And they had amazing success. And she said, I, I know this lady and I can ask her to put together them. Um, a program just for you, if you like. And I said, yes, please. And um, she did. And she actually, she gave me her phone number. And she said, you phone her. And so I said, um, okay. So I kept this phone number in my pocket. 
And um, I would get to a phone box. I didn't have a mobile phone or anything then. In those days. Uh, I got to a phone box and I would get the number out of my pocket and then I'd put it back again because I was scared. I was scared it wouldn't work or, you know, it's scary. So eventually I lucked up enough courage and I phoned her and she asked me what I wanted. She said, Harry, what do you want? And I said, I want my life back. That's all I want. I want my life back. So she put together for me a program in my own home. She said, your husband and your son will have to move out. She said, and I will put together in my church, I will ask people, I'll put together a roadster so you, there's two people with you all the time, day and night. And you come, to, you come, yeah, they'll come to your flat and they'll be with you. So I said, yeah. I, I want to do that. I want, she said, there's no medication to help you. This will be totally prayer. And it will be the Lord who will, you know, hear all you and set you free. So I said, yes, I want that. So that's what happened. And uh, these people from the church, they'd come around in twos the first night. Can I ask you something here? At, can I ask you something yeah. at this point? So you said that they, they said that, you'd have to be by yourself in the flat and that your son and your husband couldn't be there. Like, how did they react to that? And like, where did they go? They went to stay with a friend. They respected that much because I was so, one of the reasons was like, if I thought if I can get clean and my son can get clean and for him, I, I wanted to show him that, you know, it could be done. I wanted to prove it, you know, that it was possible. So it was very much him. And I said to him, please move out because I want to do this and I want to do it for you as well because you, you're you in a mess too. And my husband, I just told him, I said, you know, you've got to go. Don't stay with somebody. Go and stay with your dealer. You'll be all right then. <laughs> so, yeah. So the first night um, there were people there and I was going through withdrawals and it was horrendous. And the usual... I'd been through it before, but you can go through the drawers. You can you go back. Um, we go back on it. Most of them. So it was it was the usual um, pain. Um, you know, cramps, can't sleep, just just horrible. And so I thought, well, no, give it a go. They were praying for me, so I got through the night. Um, and the next morning, I got up and they were all praying for me and we were reading the Bible and I was still clucking, I was still ill. Um, and then the second night I went to bed and I was expecting to feel better with all the prayers. And it was the same, I was still going through these horrendous withdrawals. Um, it was worse than ever. It got even worse because craving, um, mental and your body craving it physically. It's, it was horrendous. And um, and I knew that I could only had to walk 10 minutes around the corner and I'd be okay because there was a dealer there and I knew that I could get something and I, I, I could get rid of this, this withdrawal. Uh, but, I, but I didn't. I stuck it. But I was banging. I remember banging my head against the wall, literally just trying to bang my head against the wall so the pain would take away the pe other pain in my body. And I, I was 
kind of shouting at God as well because I expect I'd expected him to do something a bit quicker. And uh, I said, I said to God, I thought you were going to help me. You know, they promised me that you'd help me. <laughs> and I was just angry with him with with everything that it you know it was wasn't any it wasn't getting better. So anyway, that was the second night. The third morning, I got up. And we were sitting in, in the room in my flat house and people were praying. Um, and all of a sudden, I don't know how it happened. I don't know what happened. But I would suddenly found myself at the foot of the cross. And I don't know if it was a vision. I don't know if I was literally there because it was so real. And I wasn't in that room, but I know that. Um, I was there. And I looked up, and there was Jesus, and he was hanging on the cross, and it was nothing like you see these slightly effeminate sort of figures hanging on a cross outside some churches or wherever, you know, um, with a little loin shot straight across, and a little drop of blood off his head, and, you know, a little drop of blood coming off his feet. And no, um, he was battered to a pulp, I mean. They'd whipped him. They'd whipped him with um, these whips, leather whips, which had pieces of metal embedded in them, and that's what they whipped them with. And they whipped him with, and he had strips of skin and flesh hanging off of his body. His face was unrecognizable. I couldn't. I could couldn't even draw his face. It was unrecognizable. They pulled out his beard. It was. He was beaten to a pulp. It was swollen. It was bloody. He, he oh, just as went to a pulp. His, there was blood everywhere, blood all over him. He was a mess, and I was just horrified, and I just looked at him. But all I could see were these eyes, and he, I could see his eyes, and his eyes were looking at me. And those eyes were so full of love that that just broke me, and I, I just fell down, and I said, Lord, what, what they did to you. And, and then he started talking to me, and he said, Hillary, if you were the only person left on this earth, the only woman on this earth, I would still have gone through this just for you. <laughs> and that broke me. It just bro- I just broke down. My heart broke, you know, because, and I, and I said, but I'm not worth it. I'm just a, I've just become a worthless little junkie. Why would you, why would you, why would you do this for me? I'm not worth it. He said, you are to me. And he said, I love you. Now, he said, you have a choice. He said, you can, you can go back. You can go back to your God that's become your God, his drug. You can come back to me and follow me. And what kind of choice was that when those eyes were looking at me with just piercing, like love for me? And it was so personal because it was just me and him. And it was me that he was loving and um, he showed me how much he loved me. And I said, you know, Lord, I want you. At that moment, I said, I want you. He knew I meant it. I, I just wanted him. I, I didn't want anything else. And the whole, everything just lifted off me. I felt it go. I literally felt all the guilt, the shame, the addiction, everything just lift off me. And it just went. And... I was I was free. I was clean. I was it was gone. It it completely healed me, me from it all. 
And I went back. Uh, uh, well, I I came back to 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 the room I was in, and they hadn't even noticed I'd gone. And they were still praying. And um, I said to the lady there who had put the thing together, I said, I'm okay now. And she said, um, okay, well, yeah, okay. And <laughs> we'll see, sort of thing. So I went to bed that night and I slept like a baby. And she even asked me in the morning if I'd managed to get something in to help me sleep or anything to make me feel okay, you know, um, in the dog's way. And um, said, no. It's gone. It's literally gone. And so they said, oh, well, you know, good. And, um, you know, just we'll come back and we'll, um, we'll pray with you. And now you need to, you know, go back to, to a church and have support. And we'll support you. And I think they believed me because they said I even looked different. And when my son came to see me, he said, Oh, mum, you look so different. What's happened to you? I said, James, you, you know, you can do this too. God will do this for you too. Uh, which he did later on, but that's a whole nother story. But, uh, so from that moment, I never wanted, desired any kind of drugs or anything. I knew that I was forgiven. I was clean and, um, I felt so born again. At, born again again <laughs> so um ah. that was amazing that was just amazing and um so where do i go from there um, <laughs> well let me just tell you um i i, I do want to respond to that because that is just like i mean just your very description of of that I think you had a real life experience there is may have been an out of body experience or just completely transported somewhere spiritually, but that was a miracle. And yeah, that, 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 uh, that is absolutely beautiful. And, uh, I'll just admit to the firmamentalists, like while you were describing the way he looked, like I couldn't help but cry because, uh, he's, he's done powerful things like that for me as well. And, and it, you're doing a good job and I know it's hard to recall some of these memories, but then there's also victory, you know, and, and I want the listeners to really focus on that, that no matter how far down you, you feel you are, there is an escape. And, and it's amazing that ministry, those people really were doing God's work. And, you know, you said they did it with no chemical, no chemical detoxing, you know, just prayer. And, and that shows you the, the power of prayer and, and that was absolutely beautiful. And thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I'll let you continue on. But I just had to, I had to tell you, like, uh, I don't think people realize what you did for us and the way you describe his eyes too. I mean, what an amazing experience. And, and that moved that me. It's the truth. And, uh, yeah, there, been, there were times when I was trying to get off it myself and I'd been lying in a bed of sweat and just stinking and just thinking, I wish I could kill myself. <clears throat> Uh, and but I believed in heaven and hell, and someone had said, "Oh, you can lose your salvation." And then I thought, "Well, okay, if I kill myself now, um, then I go to hell." And uh, and then I had a voice said to me when I was at my very worst, um, "You can never fall so far that the everlasting arms aren't underneath you." And it just gave me a little flicker of hope, you know, like a candle that's just sort of going out, but there's still a little bit of um, flame. 
And uh, that was amazing. And there's only like probably three times in my life that I've had an experience like that. And it's been when I, and I think God only gives them when you really need them. You know, you don't get them all the time. That was a big one. That was, I'll never forget it. You know, the details and what it looked like. Um, and then a little bit late, little bit after that, I was still living in that same flat. And my husband's son were back living there now. But they would bring people in. They would cook up drugs there. And it didn't touch me. I was in a bubble. I, you know, any junkie would tell you that, like, if someone's there next to them, you know, they would want, they would want to have some. It pulls you back. But there, there, nothing would pull me back. I, it didn't interest me. It was gone. The desire was gone for it. But during that time, I felt vulnerable in the sense that I knew the enemy was angry because um, I knew that my husband had um, demonic problems and that the enemy would use those against me. There was, uh, very shortly after, there was a time when he bought some, he'd got some tablets from somewhere. I don't even know what they were, but he'd taken them. And um, he was found walking up the middle of the road near our house, naked. And the police, they had to come and take him away. And I found these pills, and I thought, I don't know what these are, but they're just, he's completely off his head. And uh, I just got rid of them around the toilet. So when he got out of hospital and came back, um, he, he where where are those? What have you done with those pills? And I said, Oh, they've gone. I don't know. They've gone. And he was so angry and his eyes were flashing and he wanted them. And, uh, and so <laughs> I'm stood there and he he gets a hammer and he lifts the hammer up above his head. He said, I'm going to smash your effing head in. And, and suddenly all these um, verses came out of me like, um, he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world and, and nothing can harm me. And, you know, uh, all these warfare verses and he literally could not bring the hammer down it is it was like an invisible hand was holding his hand back and the hammer he was shaking and trying to not hit me with it but he couldn't somebody was holding his hand back and in the end he just dropped it and, and walked off my son was standing behind me with a baseball bat just in case but you know <laughs> god protected me he's protected me all the way through, but it was a difficult time. You don't really want to go through those things, but you know, it proved to me every time that I could now face. You know, I wasn't afraid. I knew God, God was protecting me, and the other thing that God showed me at that time was I was in the flat on my own, and there were French windows that opened out to the garden, and all of a sudden, it was like God um, pulled back the curtains between our realm and the spiritual realm and I saw in the garden I saw these angels and they were in a semicircle as far as I could see they were huge they were just figures I couldn't really describe them but I knew they were angels and they were protecting me and behind them were these hordes of horrible demonic nasty looking things and they, they were trying to push past to get get at me and these angels wouldn't let them pass and then it was like the curtains closed, but I knew it was real. I knew God was showing me that I'm, that I was totally protected. Yeah, there's a psalm. I I just jotted down a psalm. 
um, because there was um, about the angel of the Lord in camps around them to fear him. Yeah, it was. It's Psalm thirty-four. That was meant a lot to me in those days. It says, um, "I sought the Lord, and He inclined unto me and delivered me from all my fears." They looked to him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man, woman, cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamped around them that fear him and delivers them. And that was one of my psalms that kept me going there. The other psalm was uh, Psalm 40, one of my favorites. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And he has put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear, and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man that makes the Lord his trust and respect, not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lie. So there were others, but, you know, they were some of the, some of the Psalms that, you know, really I stood upon, you know, I stood on. And he showed me the angels were protecting me. And that was real. I really saw them. <laughs> and then it, it kind of closed, like the veil came over again. So, um, yeah, it was an amazing time. And shortly after that, uh, my probation officer, the same lady who, who I'd seen, who I used to be in a prayer meeting with, she found um, a man, a farmer in Devon, England, um, who opened up his farm for people with addictions. And she asked him if he would take my son. And my and my son agreed, and he went. He went there. And uh, how old was he at this point? Um, nineteen eighty-four. It was. Um, so he was born in nineteen seventy. It was in nineteen eighty-four. So he's like fourteen. Oh, oh, no. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, no, he was born in seventy. Um. No, 1994, sorry. It wasn't 84, it was 94. So he's, he's in his 20s. Okay. And he, he was addicted. You know, he, he had a, a habit. And so he went and he got saved there. Um, they were Christian and they prayed for him. And he came back and he was free too. So he got saved. And then uh, we were in the flat after he came back and my husband walked in. And uh, he walked in and he said, what's happened here? Like, whatever was in him was really upset. And uh, this was when he had different, I say demons, because I do believe he was demonized. Um, there was one that was so pathetic and had a cringy little voice. And it was, I found him hiding behind the door. And he said, I can't live here anymore. Can't live here anymore. And that was when I, I realized that, you know, Jesus in in my son and I were was stronger than what I'd been in him that I'd been so frightened of for all those years that have managed to control me. And he said to me one day, I I was I was looking at him, I was talking to him, and he said, You you're not scared of me anymore, are you? 
know. And he said, I'm scared of you, though. And he was scared wow. of me. He was scared of what was in him. And he knew he had, he did know he had things. I mean, he, he knew the Bible. He knew everything about the Bible. Um, he'd been baptized. I mean, I don't know. I still don't know. I haven't seen him for years, but I still don't know whether I might be in there when we get there. But, um, I, I hope so. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, he, he, I said, you need deliverance. You know, you, you could you could get those demons to leave you. You know, you could get deliverance in the name of Jesus. And he said, no, Hillary, they, they've told me they'll tear me apart from the inside as they come out if I try and get rid of them. And I, I found that so sad because he he believed that they wouldn't rip him to pieces from the inside if, the, if, if anybody tried to, you know, to get any good of them. So I don't know. I haven't seen him since I came to Ireland about twenty-two years ago. That was my the next phase was that um, my sister, who's not my biological sister, she was adopted, but she um, she bought a house in where I am now in in the west coast of Ireland in Connemara, and um, she came over one day and she said, uh, she said. Come over, come over to you know to Ireland. I've got a house and it needs doing up, and we can do it up. And my husband was when she came round, he was he was out of it. I mean, he was on a binge, and I'd had enough by then. And I said, okay, so we got some things together, packed the case, came over, and I never went back. <laughs> so I stayed here, and um, that's where the Lord wanted me. He put us here for a reason. Um, I can't go into all the details of what we do here. Um, it's a bit of a, a hidden ministry, but um, yeah. I can say that it's to do with very powerful dark forces in Ireland. But I think that, you know, God chooses some funny people for his work. and. Uh, <laughs> And his secret weapon, actually. So I can't really, I can't really give the details. But yeah, no. My sister and I have both been through things where we're no longer we face our fears. We, we we're not afraid of of those sort of things. We're not afraid of the dark things. Um, but we're very aware of the darkness here, and uh, you know we're here. Because it's so dark and uh, very beautiful place, stunningly beautiful, but there's a darkness here, and also we're in the right in the middle of a, um, a strong Catholic stronghold. Um, very dark, very dark. But uh, here we are, and we just do our best to do what God tells us to do. But I, I, I'd like to say, I'd just like to mention talking about the darkness, talking about Ireland and with Halloween looming. Uh, it's very big here. In fact, it was the Irish who brought Halloween everywhere, took it to the state, took it to England, took it over the world. Um, it started off with the, the dark, with the Druids, and you know, the the Satan worshippers that were here 
Um, there was a lot of uh, human sacrifice here. And um, I'd just like to say that if there's any Christians listening who think it's harmless, that it's not. Um, it, it still, there's a lot of darkness. And, and you know, while your children are dressing up and, and playing and getting candies and things, there's other children that are being sacrificed. It's still going on. And <sighs> really, it really is. And there's sometimes over here in the last couple of years, there have been mothers on social media and they've put out um, a plea to, to parents to keep your children very close, keep your children close to you because they've had children almost tried to snatch at this time of year. Leading up to the, this this holiday is is the highest holy satanic yeah. holiday. It's the holy holiday of the year, and uh, they do they have tried to take children, and even the testimonies of some survivors of satanic ritual abuse have have said that they were children in these covens or in these you know being satanic satanically. Opinions. Um they've they've been there when children have been brought in and they've they've seen children and they know what's happened to the children and we, we know that there are people who who do use children and um it is real and it's not fun and it's you know, it makes me upset when I went to shopping last week and it, it's like six foot high effigies of witches and Demons, yeah. People are, they love it, and you know, there's, there's a scripture, isn't there? To take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them in Ephesians, and you know, it's not funny. It's not harmless. It's real because behind the scenes, there's real satanic. Abuse going on. There's real human sacrifice going on, and there's really children, you know, disappearing and being used in these rituals. Well, I was I, I wanted to add something. I wanted to add something here because you know what's going on in the United States right now, especially with this fiasco at our southern border, and you know oh. what's really what's really behind this is. You know, all these undocumented people, I mean, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people coming up through Southern America and, and from places all over the world. And I know there's people that look at as America as this, you know, beacon of opportunity, but really the underbelly behind it is really satanic and evil. And uh, there's a lot of people going missing. There's a lot of human trafficking going on. And there's there's videos that have leaked. And, you know, of course, the mainstream media won't show this stuff, but you know, there's crates of people in boxes and, and, and who knows the true statistic of the hundreds of thousands of children that have gone missing. And you know that they're going into, and, and I know it sounds crazy, but the people that run this world are, are uh, Luciferian bloodsuckers and they pray and they believe in the, the ritualistic magic of, of the innocence of children. And they pray on that innocence. And, uh, you know, these are the people that will have a, a you know, a front row ticket to the lake of fire in the end times because you know uh you don't harm god's innocent children but it's going on in our world and 
And some of it, mm-hmm. there's people out here trying to expose it and there's people out here trying to fight it, but it, the problem is so immense and it's so much bigger than just you and I, but you're so right about watching over your children and keeping a watchful eye. I mean, I remember times when I was a child, mm-hmm. you know, and we could play outside past the sun setting and, and past the streetlights coming on and we'd ride our bikes across town and and, uh, you know, like if we were at a, a store, my mom, I had to go use the bathroom and I'm a little kid, my mom just go, you know, like now I won't even let my five-year-old, even if we're at a pizza place and he says, dad, I need the bathroom. I go with him because you don't know, you can't let your children out of their sight. And it's really weird. I really do believe in the divine voice of God speaking to people, but I'll swing it back to you. But just the other day in, in the, well, it was, it's a while back, maybe like last year, but uh, Gabby was, was driving in her vehicle. And she was listening to something on the radio and it came to a complete stop and a voice came through and spoke with her, spoke at her very clearly, keep, keep a watchful eye on your children. And then it went back to the regular programming and, and she said it was chilling and that she knew yeah. it was, it, it was a voice from God, whether it was God's voice or an angel or somebody, but it, but it was a godly voice communicating to her, you know, like, do not let your children out of your sight. And these things are happening. And what's crazy is here in America, too, even child protective services has been exposed behind being involved with some of these uh, pedophilia rings. And we are battling powers and principalities in high places that the Bible spoke about. So I'm glad that you bring this up because it is important and it needs to be said. Yeah, it does. And it's true. And, you know, same here that... um, there's mothers who have actually, people have tried to snatch their children away from them. And they're warning people, say, keep this time of the year, especially, keep them very close to you or keep them indoors because there are people really. And, and in these homes, you know, where they haven't got parents to look out for them, you know, that they can easily disappear. And we know that. You know, we, we've got the Luciferians and, you know, we know about the adrenochrome. We know, we know all that. Um, it's real. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just wanted to, um, I haven't got, I haven't got long now. I have to go soon, but um, I just wanted to say that I just was so pleased that I found George Hobbs. Yes. <laughs> because if I had that Earth Files, I, um, you know, I wouldn't have found you guys, and um, it's so nice for me to be able to listen and talk to people who who've seen these things as well. Because um, through all my years as Christian, I never believed in um, evolution or um, you know all those things: evolution, the Big Bang, all those things that were brought to us by scientism. And yet, I can hardly believe that it took me until I was like 72 years old uh, a couple of years ago to to see that the earth didn't you know it wasn't a ball that revolved around the sun and it was only because um a young guy that I spoke to um the I'm glad you're getting into this because I was going to ask you to do to tell this story thank you <laughs> this, um, he asked me uh, what what did I think the firmament was? And I said, well, it was the like bit of expanse between the sea and the sky or something. Like, you know, I wasn't really sure. 
So he he told me that he'd become a Christian. He'd come to Christ through flat earth, um, through looking into the flat earth. So I thought, well, I don't know about that. Because <laughs> I think <laughs> I think when we were at school, when we were very young, there was always a globe in the in the room. And I don't think I don't remember ever being explained to that the earth was round and it spun around the sun. It was just there. And I think it was a very visual propaganda. It was like, oh, okay, so that's what the earth is like. It's round. And so although I, I'd known about conspiracies like nearly all, all my Christian life, I mean, I learned a lot of them through those little chick track, chick booklet, the tracks, I don't know if you know them, um, they were brilliant. They exposed a lot of like Freemasonry and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that was very early on, and I, I knew a lot of conspiracies. Uh, I'd known them for years, and we didn't, here we didn't get um, jabbed. We, although we were like um, considered vulnerable because we were old and um, the doctors tried to get us to take it, we wouldn't here and um i even lost a uh, lost a surgery because i wouldn't have the um pcr um test up the nose because i didn't trust mm -hmm. that either so uh, i was booked in for a surgery and it was locked down and uh, i'd had one eye done a uh, cataract operation and uh, i was booked in for the, for the for the other eye and uh, but they wouldn't do it unless i had the um you know the the test and I said, no, I don't trust it. And so they wouldn't do it. So, I mean, we, we, we didn't go along with that. Um, and it was difficult because, like, you know, here, probably like in the States and everywhere else, everyone had to be muzzled up. And you go into a shop without a mask on um, when you realize that, that, you know, they didn't do anything. It was the pandemic. Um, you know, people, the, the people in the shop would say, have you got your mask? And I, and I had a really good one. Someone had told me, they said, keep a, a stone in your pocket. And when you go in the shop without your mask and they say, have you got your mask? You say, no, but I've got a magic stone. And you get your magic stone out of your pocket. And they say, um, well, that won't save you from getting COVID. And you say, well, neither will the mask. <laughs> <laughs> And I really wanted to use it. And I had the stone in my pocket one day. And like half the time, people wouldn't even sort of challenge you. Just people would look at you and give you a very wide berth or give hateful looks at you. And so um, I did go into a shop once, a big shop with a mask. And, and I was longing to use my stone. And the guy said to me, have you got a mask? And I said, and I wanted to use my stone. And he, and he said, and I said, no. Well, I've got a stone, and he said, "Oh, okay then." <laughs> <laughs> no. But anyway, no, we didn't. We didn't fall for any of that. None of us got jabbed. My son didn't in England either, and my family over there, my grandchildren. My son managed to. He's a he's a deputy headmaster in a primary school, and he managed to get through the lockdown without wearing a mask. In his job as well. <laughs> Good for you guys. Good for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, yeah, I don't well, play that. 
I don't play that either. And I've, I've even told my, uh, the owner of my company, man, like, I was like, I, I will not do it. You know, if it comes down to like, you have to, or else, well, I'll rely on faith that the God will provide me work somewhere else where, you know, I don't have to compromise my beliefs to make other people feel comfortable because, uh, like Alex and I always say, you know, it's now's the time that we draw lines in the sand and if we conform and we, and we belly up again, uh, we're toast, you know, we have to make a stand and we have to make a stand for what's right. And I think it's amazing, like how you say, like, you know, you came to the, to the realization of the doctrine of the shape of the earth at your age. And, you know, people don't think these things are important and they're like, why does it matter? Why is it, why is it important? Because we've been lied to our whole life. You know, we've mm -hmm. been conditioned to believe in these things that actually draw us away from the truth of our existence. And I think that's the biggest thing about flat earth is it's really you know, I didn't get saved through flat earth. I was already saved, but I know people who are getting saved through flat earth. So it, I don't think it's a bad thing, you know? And, uh, when you really look at these things, once you see it for what it is, and once you let your senses speak to you, and once you see the way the, what the Bible actually says, and you would ap apply it to that. And then you know about the scientism and you know about the occult and, you know, all these people that run these institutions, you know, have, mm -hmm deep ties to these uh, secret societies, you can't just flush that away and just go back to believing in the spinning ball. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't stand up. I'm sorry, but heliocentrism does not stand up to geocentrism and it does not, not stand up to the truth of the Bible. No. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. You can't, I can't, uh, you read the Bible differently, but I mean, nobody here will listen to me about it. They, they just tell me to shut up. <laughs> well, it's all right, you know. Um, Don't want to know. <laughs> so that's no, that's amazing. It was great when when I looked into it, um, and the Croatian guy Mario, I said, "Well, I'm going to look into it because you're an intelligent guy, and I like your story." And then I found George Hobbs' uh, Flat Earth Files, and I started listening to them, and I just got addicted. I just kept listening, and I loved people's stories, and then I. Then you guys were on there, and then I started listening to you, and I just thank God for that because I do have people who think like me, you know, that don't feel I'm, I am going crazy, you know, that I am as crazy as my family think I am. And you could be crazy, but you're crazy for Jesus, and that's the best kind of crazy you could be, you know. They could call us Jesus freaks all day. To me, that's a compliment. I was going to ask you though, like, uh, if you have a silver bullet that you were going to share with somebody about flat earth, what is, what is the silver bullet that you were like, when it hits you, you're like, this is it. This is, this is proof to me. What, what's your, what's your silver bullet? Well, apart from just using the five senses God gave us and actually looking at, I, I went out one day, um, we were, were driving around Connemara and we're on a peninsula and I basically had almost 180 degree uh, view of the sea the horizon and I just looked around and I that's when I actually said to myself it's flat it w really is flat and I I think I really totally you know said yes it's flat um but what I would say to people oh I tried dropping crumbs but they haven't picked any up yet but I feel <laughs> the fact that far I you can just see too far can't you yes <laughs> You know all that, all those proofs that, you know. But I, I keep praying that um, maybe it's just not their time here. 
I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I am, I am a bit crazy. The other thing I'm crazy about is um, my Irish rugby team, and they're playing in the World Cup in a minute. So I'm gonna. <laughs> oh, you're good. Hey, you're good. You know, and uh, Alex, man, I, uh, are you still with us, brother? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Um, go ahead. I want you to respond to what you've heard. <laughs> oh, sure. I, you know, it's funny because I, I was pretty speechless. I, I didn't know, like Raul had a good idea of what you were going to tell Hillary and I, and I'm just like the audience where I was just kind of sitting back and not knowing where the story was going. And wow, did it ever, you're a very good storyteller. I mean, that crescendo really hit, hits you in the heart and I mean, I, I can speak for a lot of people, I, and Raul too even said how emotional it was, and um, I think we're all better for for hearing your story. So I just wanted to say, uh, you know, thank you very much for that today. Well, thank you, thank you, Lord, because I did pray about it. Do you want me to do this? What do you want me to say? And you know, if if it just helps somebody, um, I was really happy to do it. Thank. I already know this is going to be my mom's favorite episode. <laughs> so my mom's name is Ida. So hi, Ida. <laughs> um, yeah. So thank you so much for uh, choosing Firma Mental to be the first podcast that you uh, visited and shared your story with. Uh, we were blessed to have you and uh, good luck to your Irish rugby team and uh, God bless yeah. you. I'm more, I was more I'm more nervous about this game than I was about coming on actually because they're playing Scotland and it's going to be a really tight game and if they don't win this they won't be getting into the quarterfinals of the World Cup so um, it's going to be a tight game tonight. <laughs> there you go. Well, enjoy it, man. We all we all need our bread and circus sometimes, and uh, for me that's like UFC. Um, so uh, hey, thank you again, uh, and. Uh, Folks, fermentalists, till we see you next time, remember, protect your dome. Peace. How do we find ourselves here within these walls and chains as a teardrop lands? Who is there to blame?
skies turn blue.